All right, well, we're going to read Titus 1, 1 through 9. And we have kind of been in chapter 1 for a long time. <laughs> but we're going to keep on moving and hopefully in the next two weeks finish up chapter 1. So let's just read starting verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before time began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace, from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right, so last week we kind of talked about all the different passages about the gospel, basically, about what is the faith that he's talking about. And we covered kind of the whole, all of them, basically, in one kind of big, broad strokes. And this time we're just going to look specifically at this particular passage, what it's specifically saying, because it describes the gospel in a specific way that's interesting and helpful and is a little different than what we get in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 3. So I think it's worth not just hitting them all in one big chunk, but coming back by and thinking about this specifically. And let's just look at these verse first four verses and we'll just go through it. And this isn't necessarily in any logical order other than I'm just going to go through it and kind of hit some thoughts as he hits them uh, word by word or phrase by phrase. So the first thing I want you to notice here and we'll just read verse 1 again and, and then we'll stop. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before time began. And at the proper time he manifested his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So there's one kind of long sentence. There's kind of a lot of thoughts in there. A lot of them start with P, so that kind of helps me remember it. So the first thing I want to point out here is just that God has a plan. Um, God has a plan. And you see this kind of all over. You see the word elect there. You see how he, it talks about the proper time Jesus came and showed us what the gospel is. And then you see this, how he made a promise before the ages began. So before time began, before there was anything, God had a plan. And that's encouraging that this whole world, all the difficult things going on in your life and in the, in the rest of the world, there's a purpose. 
that it's not random. It's not just chance that there's a God who, even before time began, knew what was going to happen and had a good purpose and plan in all of it. And specifically, what it's talking about is redemption. God wanted to save sinners. Ephesians talks about this in similar terms, but just a little bit different. In chapter 1, it says, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you see a lot of those same elements hit in a little bit different order, said in maybe a little bit different way, but the idea that God has a purpose and has a plan, and the plan was that we might know him as sinners and be saved through his blood. And that's encouraging. Uh, it's something that we need to know every day. There's lots of things that go wrong that seem random. And the reality is, is that it's not unknown to God. That it's not, it's not God's surprise. Things are out of control. God knows. And he provided for all our needs in Christ. And he sent him at the right time, at the proper time. And he knew, Christ, that he was going to come to die for sinners before the world began, which is really encouraging that God has a plan, there's a purpose. And tied in with that is the second P, promise. And I want you to notice that in verse 2, he uses that. That's the way he talks about it here. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. It's a promise. And, you know, last week we talked about the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, one way we could describe the gospel is literally a promise. That what is, you know, this whole book about? What does God want us to know? He wants us to believe a promise. That's pretty encouraging. That, you know, there's a thousand different ways we could probably describe what salvation is, but one way is just what it says here, believing a promise. God said, well, what's a promise? God said something beforehand. I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. And he promised well, we could just think of a specific verse. This particular verse says, in hope of eternal life. Um, that's one of the things God has promised. He's promised eternal life. We could think of John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in, you know, in American Christianity. Almost everybody, many people know it, even people that don't go to church a lot of times know John 3.16, that... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a promise there, that whoever trusts Christ, who believes in Christ, will have eternal life. And what happens when we're saved is we believe a promise, that God said he was going to do something, and we believe, wow, he really is going to do that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that God said he would forgive my sins, and he will forgive my sins. It's a pretty amazing promise. And we've used this, I've used this illustration before, but one way we could give kind of a metaphor of salvation is imagine, let's, let's just imagine we're out, in, or out walking around town and we meet and we kind of chat, you know, how are you, what's your name, you know, what's going on? And, well, I'm kind of busy. And I'm talking to you and I say, I'm kind of busy. I've got, I've got a court date today and 
I'm, I need to get over there because I'm going to be tried for a crime. And you're like, well, that's kind of concerning. What? And I go on to tell you, well, it is, but it's pretty encouraging because I'm guilty, the judge knows I'm guilty, and I'm going over there to get sentenced, but there's really good news. The judge told me, he promised me that when I go, instead of getting sentenced, he's actually got a gift for me. And not only is he going to forgive me, he's got a gift. And so I stole this money maybe or something like that. And I have all this, not only um, did I do it, but I broke all this stuff and so I'm going to need to pay for it and I'm struggling to pay my rent. And the judge said, I'm going to forgive you. Make sure you show up for court. I'm going to, you're going to get off. And I, I've got a gift there for you because I want to help you, you know, pay your rent and pay some of this stuff off. And I said, so I'm, I'm kind of excited to get over there. That's kind of what it is to become a Christian. <laughs> you are on your way to Judgment Day, and you believe, wow, I'm excited to meet Jesus. Why? Because you're innocent? No, because we're guilty. But the judge has promised not only to forgive us, but that he would give us a gift, the gift of eternal life, the gift of his son, um, the gift of a relationship with him. It's a pretty amazing, uh, bold, and wild expectation to say, I'm excited to see the judge, even though I know I'm guilty. He knows I'm guilty. But I'm looking forward, and I'm not only coming just to be sentenced, I'm coming with my arms open, ready to receive a gift. And that's what we do. That's the way we're saved. We hear the promise of Christ that you're guilty. But you, you know what? I want to forgive you and cleanse you, and I want to change you. And I want to free you, and I want to give you eternal life. I want to give you a relationship with me. And we come believing that. And that's how we're saved. We believe God's promise. God said, I'll do this, and we believe it. That's, that's what it is to be saved. We believe a promise. Spurgeon has a little devotional called The Checkbook of Faith, and he talks about faith, and he compares it to a check. And a check, somebody writes out, Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how much money I'm going to give you. And they sign their name at the bottom. You know, this is, and I'm, I'm going to give it to you, and um, you take it to the bank. And that's, he says, a lot like conversion. God has promised something to you. He's written a check, and the check is forgiveness. The check is a relationship with God, eternal life in Christ, a new heart, uh, the Holy Spirit within you, all the things that um, are promised in the gospel and you have the check, and the question is, what do you do with it? Do you believe it? Because if I wrote you, you know, a check today that said, you know, $1 million to so-and-so, you could just rip up that check and just be like, this is just a joke, you know. Like, uh, stop joking with me. And you'd be right. Like, I don't have a million dollars to give you, you know. Uh, or you could throw it in the garbage, you know. But the reality is that there is a check for you that God has written, and it's not a joke, and it's real. And the question is, do you believe it? And you could either be encouraged or discouraged. Um, if you didn't believe the check was real, you probably wouldn't take it to the bank. And then surely it wouldn't uh, in, encourage your heart if you didn't believe it was real. On the other hand, if you did, what joy would come? And what hope, which is what it talks about here, um, hope of eternal life, that we have this check in our hand. And the check is eternal life in Christ, forgiveness by his blood, all these things that he's promised us. And we have it in our hand. And we are on our way to the bank. And we know 
God's good at, at his word. And so we can be encouraged. Even if we um, haven't seen Christ face to face yet. We don't, we're not experiencing all that he's promised us yet. We're experiencing some. But we're looking forward to everything that he has for us. And we can go banking on it. Just as if, you know, just as certain as if, you know, God wrote us a literal check. Um, but, so that's promise. God promised us. The gospel is believing a promise. But it's, it's rooted in something else. Like how do we know that we can trust the Lord? How do we know that we can believe this promise? Look at what it says here. In verse 2, it roots this promise in the person of God. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God, who never lies. So we talked about Crete, how that he's writing this letter to Titus in Crete, and they were notorious for being liars, basically. And even now, in English, we sometimes call people a Cretan, which means you know, you're a bad character. And same was true back then, proverbial, proverbially um, immoral. But he's contrasting all that, that moral, uh, morally corrupt context with the God who never lies. He doesn't promise something and not give it. God always tells the truth, and so that's why we can trust his promise. That's what faith is. It's just believing God doesn't lie. I can trust him. This is what God said, and I can believe it because God doesn't lie. And that's really the only two options. It actually makes it quite easy because either Jesus, when he said that he'll forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life through faith in him, he was either telling the truth or he was lying. Those are the only two options. That's pretty easy options when you read the life of Jesus and see what he was like, right? He wasn't a liar. Jesus told the truth more than any person I've ever met uh, in all or read about in all of history. Jesus is the one person I can trust 100%, right? That he's telling the truth. There's no question. God never lies. And we can see it. You can see throughout the Bible, God in general, but specifically Jesus in his life and death, you can see that he's good at his word. And that's really what John, First John, kind of brings out this idea that when we believe God, we either believe him or we're calling him a liar. And that's what, that's what John, First John specifically says. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. That's First John 5, 10 through 11. So here's what he says. He says, you've got two options. Believe God or call God a liar. Those are the only two options. It's just like it would be today with you and me. If, if I said, hey, I'd love to, you got something going on? I'd love to help out. I'll be there at such and such a time. And you say, I don't believe you. I'm not sure. I don't believe you. Well, then I'm not telling the truth. Or maybe I don't have the power to fulfill it. Um, the reality is that God has the power to fulfill whatever he promises. So we know that. And if we, God promises something and we say, I'm not sure I believe that, then we're calling God a liar. It's like, why would God say this and then not do it? Um, we know that he will. 
we may not understand exactly how it works, but we know that God's good at his word. We know that God's not a liar. We can trust him. So we talked about God has a purpose in all things. God ha- promised eternal life. That's what salvation is, is believing a promise. It's rooted in the person of God that he can't lie. And then finally, Paul, this is the, this is the last P here. He talks about what's the result of that? Well, preaching. He says in verse 3, At the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So what do we do with this message of the gospel? We proclaim it. And the rest of chapter 1 is talking about how does this idea that of God and the gospel, the faith, work out in to the church? What does that look like in the church? And he goes on to talk about that. And the first thing is preaching, right? If we have a message of salvation, of the gospel, from God, promised before time began, it's certain because God never lies. It's good news. We can be saved from our sins. There's a Savior who loves us. What do we do? Well, first we teach, we preach, we tell the truth. And that's one of the big pieces of what the church is for. That reason we gather together, one of the reasons is just to hear the truth and be reminded of the truth and proclaim the truth to each other and to our hearts and ask the Lord to help us. And we see this here as he's talking about elders in verses 5 through 9, that we, one of the elder, jobs of the elder is to preach truth. And so how does this idea of the gospel, the faith, delivered once to the saints, what do we do with that specifically in the context of the church? We hold on to the truth and we teach it and we remind one another and we continue to proclaim the same thing that Paul said, the same thing that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near, repent, believe the gospel, trust the Lord. We're saying the same message today that that he was saying. That's one of the jobs of the church. There's more, but that's one, one of the main ones. And it makes sense if you think about the gospel is a propositional claim. It's truth claim. It's that this is what God is like, and this is what God is going to do, and this is how you can be saved. And so it's our job to proclaim that here. And that's what we want to do. And then... Secondly, I'm going to turn a corner and talk about something that we mentioned last week, but we didn't hit on very much, but the effect of the gospel. Because we could summarize all of Titus kind of into two points, God and the gospel, and then how do we apply that to our lives? And then chapter one is in the church. Chapter two is in our individual lives and families. And then chapter three is in the broader world. But it's all, one, it's all two points, basically. God and the gospel. Who is God? How can we be right with him? And then how does that shape our lives? in every aspect, whether that's the church or home or out in the community, how does that shape our life? And last week we just talked about God and the gospel, basically. But woven in the whole book is not just the gospel, the truth, the propositional truth, but application. How do you apply that? Not just preach the gospel, but how do you live out the truth that you've just said? How do you apply gospel living as well as gospel truth? You don't want to just know it, you want to live it, you want to obey it. Know the truth and apply the truth, both. And so we see that here in this context of the church. The church is not just a place where we talk about truth, we talk about ideas, and that's it. We talk about them, and then they change us. God changes us through his word and through truth, and we apply it to our lives. And I want you to see that here in two different ways. First is, in verses 1 to 4 that we've gone over quite a few 
times here, but I want you to notice a specific phrase here in, in verse 1. After he says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So pause right there, verse 1 1. Knowledge of the truth. That's one side. The gospel. What is it? What's the content? Okay, that's the first point. And then the second is, which accords with godliness. That's the application. That's the life change. That's gospel living, not just knowing, but living. And the Paul is saying here that they're one accord. They go together. Uh, I like the NIV here. It says it a little bit different. It's the same idea. It says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That they can't be separated. That when you really know the gospel, the result is to apply it. That that's the natural application. There's a natural outgrowth from hearing that God loves you. He saved you. Your sins were weighing you down, that you deserve punishment, but yet Jesus died for, for your sins uh, to forgive you freely. What does that do? Should we keep on sinning? You know what Paul says in Romans? Man, um, you know, may it never be. You know, um, how If we've died to sin, how can we go on living in it? If we know the gospel, it changes our life. And they go, they go hand in hand. You see that here. Knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. They go together. It's not just one or the other. It's kind of like a cookbook. Imagine if I had a cookbook and we had a... Let's, let's imagine there's a, another building right next to ours and it's called the Sunday Cookbook Club meeting or something. And everybody gets together and they all have their cookbooks and they all talk about cooking. And um, they love to even show videos of other people cooking and kind of critique it. Like, oh, yeah, you see that person? They're making tacos, but they didn't make their own tortillas. You know, that's terrible uh, or whatever. And then afterwards, we're mingling. We're all mingling at the cookbook club. And, and everybody's like, hey, where do you want to go out to eat? And we start talking. And they say, well, what are you doing tonight? Oh, we eat out every night. We never, we never cook at home. <laughs> it's like the book, a cookbook, is meant to be used. It's not to get together and discuss and critique or... Um, you know, just understand it. It's like the natural, if you have a cookbook, at some point, the point is to actually cook something, right? <laughs> so if we had a club where all of us got together and talked endlessly about recipes, but we never actually cooked something, it would not make any sense, right? And especially if, what if we open the cookbook and the first, let's, let's open up our cookbook and let's read what it says. The first thing is, don't be one of those people that always eats out and never actually cooks. And maybe that's what the cookbook says. That would be so silly if we were here and that's exactly what we're doing. Well, that's exactly what the Bible's like, right? The Bible can so easily become this thing that we know and know and pour over and discuss and talk about and talk about and talk about. And it even says, don't be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer. Like, don't just know it and discuss it constantly, but actually apply these things. And yet it can easily become that, where the, it is meant to be applied and somehow we get so caught up in talking about it, discussing it, memorizing it, learning it, having all these Bible studies that we don't apply it to our lives. And it's a real danger. And we could look at you know some of the letters in Revelation we have before. But it's that can really happen, and that's scary. All that is to say this, that the gospel that we preach, we want to apply to our lives. We don't want to just be reading and going home, and it doesn't change us at all. It's the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, which is why verses five to, we read verses 5 to 9. 
which I'm going to cover kind of just in a broad sense, and then we'll cover it more like in detail, like point by point in a later week. But basically the point is that if we ha you have an elder, and he's saying appoint elders in every town, what should they be like? It doesn't just have one point that says they should know a lot and be able to, t you know, talk real good or something like that. Um, it's got a lot of qualifications where if you're going to be up proclaiming the gospel, you should actually apply it to your life. Why? Because the church isn't just a place where we know truth. It's a place where the gospel affects our life. You know, truth for life. It's like not just truth for the sake of knowing. Truth to change us. Truth that actually affects us. And so that's why there's all these lists of... Uh, he spends more time actually talking about character than he does about doc doctrine, really. He's, he talks over and over about your family. He, he talks about your temperament. He talks about how you treat others. He talks about your character in terms of self-control, uh, how that looks in terms of eating and drinking and how you treat others, um, how you structure your day. In terms, are you disciplined or are you all over the, all over the place? Um, can't, figure, you know, get things done that you know you need to get done, things like that. And then he he talks about holding firm to the trustworthy word is taught. And if we know the whole context of the book, it makes perfect sense why this is right here. Because we said, like we just talked about, the two points of the book are God and the gospel and how do we apply that to our lives. If that's the case, if, if we need to know the truth and apply the truth, then in the church we should, have, we should be a place where people know the truth and apply the truth both. And so that's all he's really saying here, is he's saying, as we get together to hear the gospel, to talk about the gospel, to know it better, to encourage one another, we need people leading that live it out. Otherwise, that's going against the whole point of what the gospel is and what the church ought to be. So, that's... Titus 1, 1 to 9, kind of in a general overview. Now let's just talk about it for our lives. Uh, just how can we apply this to our lives just a little bit more. It's encouraging to think that in many cases in your life, there's a lot of things in your life, big things in your life, that can have simple solutions. And one of them, I'm not saying this is a solution for every problem in your life, but for many problems that we have, a solution can simply be believing a promise. That's a pretty basic thing, is to hear what God says, what He's like, what He's going to do, what He's going to do in your life, what He's going to do in the world, what He's going to do in general, and just believe it and trust it. That's a, that's a pretty simple thing, especially when we talk about, is God lying or is, he, is God going to lie to you or is He not going to lie to you? Because those are really the only options. Is God going to do what He said or is He not going to do what He said? And yeah, Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I, like, I like Pilgrim's Progress. I like the second one. There's actually a second one where it's Christiana, his, his wife, that um, makes this journey to heaven, basically. And it's an allegory. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but... Basically, there's this section that comes up about believing a promise. It comes up over and over in both of the versions, both with Christian and his wife. But basically, 
he hears about the gospel and he leaves his, the city of destruction and then he goes into this thing which Bunyan calls the slough of despond, which I'm probably saying wrong. But basically, it's the swamp of sadness. So it's like this bog, you know, that is all wet and he starts to sink in the mud um, of despair, basically, of sadness. And he eventually he gets pulled out, but the guy who pulls him out tells him, there's steps here, and he says the steps are God's promises. And I'll just read you just a tiny little portion of it. There are by the direction of the lawgiver, God, certain good and substantial steps, the promises of forgiveness and acceptance to life by faith in Christ, placed in the very midst of this swamp. These steps are hardly seen, or if they be, men through dizziness of their heads step besides not knowing the steps are there, but the ground is good. I'm kind of changing the words because it's a little bit, written a little bit archaic. But the ground is good uh, when when they're at once in the gate. Um, basically the idea is that there's this swamp and they're sinking in it, but God has put something there that they can stand on that's firm and secure and, can, and that they can rest in so that they don't sink. And that's God's promises. And many you're, are walking through life and they don't see them there or stand on them and they get bogged down um, when God provided them to be there and they maybe step right next to them. Is there anything in your life where you're just, it feels like you're walking through a swamp. It's like there's this really difficult situation. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you got a health problem or maybe it's something relational at work or maybe it's something uh, internal that you're struggling with. Whatever it is, is there something where it just feels like you're going through the mud and it's just so hard and you feel like you're going to sink? Is there any promise that you can lean on? Maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's you feel like you're just sinking under the weight of of your sin. Can you find a promise to lean on to believe God. God said he's going to help me. God said he'll never leave me or forsake me. God said he would forgive me. God said he would help me um, overcome my sin. Whatever it is, is there a promise that you can lean on and believe God and be have some something firm under your feet to help you get through this situation, to get through this swamp that you feel like you're being pulled down in? Back to the check analogy. Wouldn't it be sad and if somebody was really needing money and something, maybe they couldn't pay their rent, and somebody wrote them a check, and they just constantly were just worried all the time. Maybe they never took the check to the bank. They just they worried and worried and worried about the money. All the while they had the check in their hand, you know, that they could have taken in. Or they could have at least rested in. I've got this check, you know, and at the end of the month, this will go through, and I'll be able to pay my bills. In some ways, we can do that with our life. You know, it's like, here's God. He promised he would save us, forgive us, he'd be with us in any difficulty, even in the darkest valley, even in the valley of the shadow of death. He'll be with us. He won't leave us or forsake us. And we can walk through and have that in our pocket, in in our mind, even in, in the Bible, but not actually apply it to our life and to take take comfort from it and to actually find relief 
find help, even thankfulness in our heart towards God. God, thank you. I don't know what's going on here, but I know you're going to come through. I know you're going to fulfill what you said. And so I'm not saying that that is going to solve every problem. That's not the solution to every problem. Um, And it may not be something that changes everything overnight, but it can be something that helps in any situation. Does that make sense? There's some help in any situation from believing the Lord. There's a lot of help. First in forgiveness and salvation, but also as we live our life. And that's kind of the last thought I want to leave you with is the way we're saved is the same way we live our Christian life every day. And we could just call it by faith. We are saved by faith and then we walk by faith. To put that in the, the language we've been talking about today in terms of a promise, we're saved by believing the promise of forgiveness of sins and the way we live our life is every day doing that again and again and again. In, in the same area of sin, right? Like when we sin, what do we do? We just go to God again. We confess it and we thank Him that He wants to forgive us and ask for forgiveness and we move forward in faith, trusting um, that every sin that we commit, He loves us, He still wants to forgive us and we just go back to Him and do the same thing again. And then we do that in all the areas of our life, not just sin, not just our soul, but when little things happen, physical things, emotional things, relational, all these areas of our life, we're coming and we're believing God, you're still in control. You still know everything about my life. You still are here to help me. You still uh, want what's best for me. There's a thousand different promises you could apply, but there's an opportunity to live in faith every day in many areas. Um, And so that's what we want to do. We want to take what God said, take it to heart, and apply it to our life. It's what we did with the gospel. We heard that Jesus wants to forgive us of our sins. He died for sinners, and then we applied it to us specifically. And that's me, my sin. Jesus wants to save me from my sin and wash me of my sin. I'm going to have eternal life. And then we do the same thing throughout our life, our Christian life with sin, but also when we come to a situation that's difficult, we look to him on a promise. Maybe it's, there's, I like the all promises because, you know, they apply to everything. So um, God is able um, to make all grace abound to you. So having all sufficiency in every situation, uh, you can abound in every good work. That's in Second Corinthians. There's a lot of alls there. It's like I can take what he said, his promise, and not just know it in my mind, but specifically apply it to my life and my specific situation and move forward. God, you want to help me here. You're able to help me. You're going to give me grace, and you're going to help me go forward, not only just to make it through, but actually to bring positive out of this for other people um, in, in my family and the people around me, that you're able to make all grace overflow. So I'm just trusting that today in this difficult situation, and you move forward. So the same way we're saved is the same way we live our life, believing God, believing his promise, trusting him yesterday, today, tomorrow, the next day, every day, with big things, with little things, with everything. And that's where that's where we want to be every day. So let's pray together. Father, we just want to take you at your word and believe you and that it would change our hearts and that we would 
find comfort in our day-to-day that we wouldn't sink in difficulty and trials. I pray that you would help us. Help us to believe you and to love you. And I pray that if there's anybody um, just thinking about their sin and wanting to be saved, I pray you just uh, help them today just to repent and trust you today and not, not wait. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all the different promises you've made to us. And just forgive us for uh, um, not believing it, not applying it, not taking you seriously. And um, we want to do that more and more. We want to believe what you say and, and apply it to our lives. I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to be a church where we know the truth and apply the truth. Uh, where the gospel is something we're very clear on, uh, knowing what it is, but also very clear in applying it to our lives. We need help every day, so we ask that you'd forgive us where we fail and help us going forward. Ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.